From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. Your average Jew knows that once you're Jewish, and I believe this when I converted, once you're Jewish, you're never supposed to be asked if you converted, um, you're a Jew, that's all that matters. White people forget that when it comes to people of color. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we have another episode diving into the fraught issue of race. Our guest is Rabbi Sandra Lawson, and we'll be discussing her essay, Racism in the Jewish Community. This piece, co-written with rabbinical student Donna Cephas, examines the assumption that all Jews are white while touching on a whole bunch of other issues, conversion, interracial families, adoption, Ashkenazi privilege, political correctness, Right now, it's the most read essay in the Evolve site. Check it out and you can see why. So as a reminder, all the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free at the Evolve website, evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are not required reading for the show, but we definitely recommend checking them out. Little housekeeping. For those who don't know, Sam Walks edits this show and is kind of my partner in putting it together in, in, in every respect, along with um, Rabbi Jacob Staub, who's our executive producer. And I've often encouraged him to lend his voice to the show because he just asks great questions. And on this interview, he did it. So if you hear a if you hear a voice seemingly out of the blue, it's Sam asking a question. Thanks, Brian. It's great to join the conversation. All right. I am really excited to have Rabbi Lawson on the show. So disclosure, as part of my job at Reconstructing Judaism, I successfully pitched profiles of her to the Philadelphia Inquirer and JTA. And you can check those stories out in our show notes. In short, I've heard Rabbi Lawson tell her story before, both in public settings and in private. But during this interview, I was really struck, almost heartbroken, by the rawness of of the way she described her experiences. During these episodes, I've kind of been pressing for, I guess, quote unquote, the answers, how we move forward on on questions about race. And it hasn't always been easy to get those answers. And maybe it was unfair to expect Rabbi Lawson and others to to have an ABC step program forward. Um, But I think what you get today is as important if not more important than, quote, unquote, the answers. I'm betting that you'll find Rabbi Lawson's stories, I'm going to use the word transformative, even though it's an overused word. I think it really applies here. Um, Listening to this, I think you're going to approach your next encounter with a Jew of color in a synagogue or other Jewish setting. I think you're going to approach that differently. I know for me, it's, it's, I think these words are going to, stay with me for a long time, and I hope remain kind of etched in my brain and and my my heart. Um, I think it's really the power of sharing stories that we can can be impacted and and changed. So anything else folks should know before we get going? Yes, Rabbi Lawson is the Associate Chaplain of Jewish Life and the Jewish Educator at Elon University in North Carolina a 2018 graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, 
She's also a military veteran, a musician, a weightlifter, and a personal trainer. She identifies as African-American, queer, and vegan. She's also a social media powerhouse and has been dubbed the Snapchat rabbi. In 2016, she was included in JTA's list of 10 Jews you should follow on Snapchat. So Rabbi Sandra Lawson, welcome, welcome to the podcast. We're so, so happy to have you. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to it's good to be back. Yeah, I know you you were uh, you were a guest on 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 the po- the former podcast Trending mm-hmm. Jewish. We were we were neighbors. We we worked in the <laughs> worked. I worked in the building where you went to school. So it's it's great to reconnect. Um, and really really excited to to talk with you. Um, we're starting with the essay you wrote on, on mm-hmm. racism in the Jewish community, which we were which is now a, a, a couple uh, was written a couple of years ago, and and mm-hmm. it's um the most popular read essay on, on the Evolve site. <laughs> and so to the extent you remember, I, I, I wanted to learn just a little bit about, I mean, in, in some ways it seems, you know, like an obvious topic for you to write about, then maybe it might, on the other hand, it might not be something you'd want to be, you know, write about. So mm-hmm. I guess, how did it, how did it come about? Well, um, so Jacob Saub, Rabbi Jacob Saub, uh, um, sent me an email and we had a conversation, um, from my memory, I think he knew some, that I had some challenges, um, being a black or person of color, black person, rabbinical student at RRC and asked me to, uh, co-author an essay on my experiences of race or racism. Not sure how, how we work that out. Um, and he gave me the opportunity to pick a co-author and we, went through some names and um, Donna Cephas seemed to be the best, best person for both of us, especially me because her, her experiences as a white woman with a black family um, was sort of like complimenting, you know, my experiences as, as a black woman. And so that those two perspectives were really important for the essay. And yeah, unfortunately, Donna, Donna is not, not mm-hmm. with us today for, for really reasons of, of, of privacy and, and concern mm-hmm. about our family has chosen not to per- participate in, right. in the podcast, which, which we, um, we totally respect. Um, so I guess for, 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 um, there's a, there's a lot about there about your mm-hmm. personal experiences, which I want to get into, mm-hmm. but could you, could you kind of summarize the argument you were, you were making? the two of you were making what what you really hoped folks would take away from from being confronted with um your perspective on 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 racism in the jewish community yeah so what don and i decided to do early on was that we figured the best approach for us were to talk about racism but from a person our own personal narratives and so the first part of the essay sort of lays out um you know the challenges of race and give some historical knowledge of racism in the United States and racism in the Jewish community and how privileged Ashkenazi, white Ashkenazi Jews experience Judaism versus how people of color experience Judaism. And then both of us went into our own narratives with some examples. Um, and the interesting thing is, it's kind of funny or sad, is that we, you know, we had so many examples, we had to be picky about which ones we chose because we both experience um racism in, in the Jewish in the Jewish world. So I guess I, I, wa- I wanted to learn about mm-hmm. um, about some of your experiences both both that were mentioned in the essay and 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 without of it before we can 
really gather yeah. what to draw from those experiences. So I'm I'm assuming before the negative experiences, there there must uh, there must have been some positive ones to to draw into Jewish life. I, I was wondering if you could talk at all about sort of your early experiences yeah. at at uh, uh, Congregation Beit Beit Havarim, which which from mm-hmm. what I understand is is really the first place you went mm-hmm. to syn- in Atlanta, where you went to synagogue and really first experienced. Jewish life. I mean, I mean, my sense is, um, you know, I guess I wanted to hear about that. It was 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 racism something that kind of hit you right, right from the beginning, or 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 was it, or was it, did it sort of encounter later on as as you grew more more involved in Jewish communities and in, in other places? Yeah, I was there from the beginning. Like, what I think I think was interesting is that. I can people can have good experiences and bad experiences in communities and both can be true. People can experience welcoming from a person and racism at the same time from a person. Um, and so there are levels of racism and, and microaggressions and my, macroaggressions that Jews of color and people of color in the United States experience all the time. And what I think people don't understand, um, I recently did a workshop and um, we talked about how racism has evolved. And so as a, as a woman of color, I kind of feel like um, for white people, and you could tell me if this is wrong, when if I say, if I call you out on racist behavior, racist, like that's like the worst thing and people's minds automatically go to the worst descriptions of racism ever that have ever existed, lynchings, KKK, neo-Nazi, whatever. And, and those that, that's definitely like, examples of racism but because our laws have changed and it's no longer socially acceptable um, and we live in a culture that from the very beginning that has privileged one group of people over another racism has also evolved and so Mm -hmm. how I experience racism is very different than my mother and my father experienced racism and how they experience racism is very different than how my grandparents experience racism Um, you know like my parents migrated um, made the mass migration from the south to the north to the Midwest to to find jobs, and they met, and they had me and my brother, and they got divorced and all that. Uh, and um, that's another story. I know. <laughs> um, and um, I, you know, I have benefits of a college degree, a master's degree, and rabbinic. Well, actually, two master's degrees if you count my rabbinic coordination. And so I'm in a very different different place than my parents and like my, my grandparents. So I just want to say that. So, can you give an example of 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 a of an instance where you felt welcomed and and some level of racism at the same yeah. moment? It's it's hard, you know, certainly yeah, no, hard for I'll, me to picture. And, and I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Right. Um, and, and again, there's a lot to pick from. So, um, actually, I'll just say this: and at Congregation Beit Havarim, the synagogue that I love, that is my foundation for Judaism. You were you were a board member there, right? Yeah, I was a board member. I was a uh, first vice president. Um, and when I was leaving, I was I left Congregation Beth Hebron initially because I thought I wanted an academic degree in Judaism, like a master's and PhD in, in religious studies. And I quickly realized that was not what I, the route that I wanted to go. Um, but I talked to a member who I had known for a long time, and you know, I was saying that I was. Going, going to pursue this. And then ultimately, I probably would wind up going to rabbinical school. And he was really excited for me and really happy. But his initial response to me was, oh, my God, you were more Jewish than the Jews. 
And so he could have meant in that moment that like, you know, converts, you know, are more excited about Judaism, but the way it came across, and I don't actually think that's what he meant. The way it came across to me was, I don't see you as a Jew, even after all these years that you have been, you know, are my board wow. member, my congregant, I still cannot see you as a Jew. I, I know you're Jewish, so therefore I, I can validate and be excited that you're going to rabbinical school or you're going to pursue this higher education, but at the same time, I don't see you. And the at least the way you're telling it, I, I just I envision it being being sprouted out like unconsciously. So Oh like yeah, because were... he did major backpedaling afterwards. Like he knew how that sounded. And the more he kept trying to explain it, the worse he was digging himself in. Because I mean, there was I... no way to explain it. That feels like something that that I, I could really easily see myself blurting that mm -hmm. out. You know, it's yeah. just um, mm -hmm. how how does that make you feel? Is it is it crushing? Is it something you just shrug off? Is it somewhere in between? I mean, um, I mean, this particular person I'd had multiple conversations with around um, Judaism and race. Um, we had a, this, and for some reason, I'm using examples from the same person um a, a few years earlier or maybe earlier that year josh, josh so that's rabbi joshua lesser of congregation Beit havarim who was actually a guest on the third episode of the show preparing our communities for conversations on race that was his essay so yeah and um rabbi josh did a sermon on yom kippur on race and so this particular congregant came up to me and um, started talking to me about, you know, Jews of color. And in that conversation, I said to him, I said, please don't assume that all Jews of color in our community converted to Judaism. Because that's not true of all Jews. And it's definitely not true of all Jews of color in our community. For sure. And he's like, oh, really? So, well, who are they? I said, that's irrelevant. They're all Jewish. Um, and then in his mind, though, he wanted to talk to them because he thought that meant those people had the same upbringing. And for this particular individual, that meant they grew up in New York, not only New York, but they grew up in Brooklyn and they had a similar background to him because that's how he saw Jews. And I was like, why are you assuming that if someone is Jewish <laughs> from the time that they were born, that they grew up in Brooklyn? <laughs> like, and he was like, just, that's just, that's how he saw the Jewish community. Even though we were nowhere near Brooklyn at the time, we were in Atlanta, Georgia. So you just did it. it yeah, you just no, shrugged I didn't, it off I didn't as... like it. I mean, I definitely told um, Josh and I had a conversation about it afterwards, um, and I was annoyed and fr and frustrated. But you know, I make decisions all the time about when to call people out on their racism, and because this was a very festive event, and and you know, people knew that I was leaving. That was not the time to do that. I just and he was struggling to correct himself, so I just let him continue to struggle. Um, and sometimes these things happen so fast, um, that, um, I'm, you know, I'm making decisions quickly on how to, to deal with, deal with them. Um, I'll give you another example, um, you know, where I currently work, uh, I work as a rabbi at the campus, uh, and I'm the only rabbi serving in that role on the campus. There's another, uh, ordained rabbi, but he's the professor, he's the chair of religious life, and he's a wonderful man. Just this amazing. is Western North Carolina, right? It's, um... Upper North Middle. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There are mountains uh, there, right? Oh, yeah. Not where okay. I live, but not far away. And okay. I su really suggest you check them out because they are beautiful and I love going to them. Um, 
you know, but I, there was a parent who was, she came to, to visit and a colleague of mine um, said, oh, I want you to meet our rabbi. This is Rabbi Sandra Lawson. And the parent who's a parent of, of a prospective student just sort of stared at me and just several times asked me if I was ordained. And uh, she's like, you're, or you're ordained. Like she stumbled over it. And I said, yeah. And um, she was like, you're an ordained rabbi. And I said, yes. And after the third or fourth time, I just jokingly said, I have a business card in my office. If you'd like to see it. <laughs> like, do you just want to shake the person? Like, do you know what yeah. I had to do to get that title? Well, like, show me the- if, but the thing is like, as if any university <laughs> would hire a non-ordained rabbi. I don't even understand what that would look like. Cause I just, you have, I mean, even when I got this job, I had to show transcripts from all of my education to be in the file. So it's just like, it's not like they're taking people's word, um, you know, for it. So I, you know, and, you know, and, and sometimes I make different decisions. Like, um, in, you know, my first few weeks here, we had a family uh, brunch or something. Um, and I was, cornered by several parents who repeatedly felt entitled to have intimate details about my life. You know, like someone did you convert, like, you know, and just like questions that I don't, that my white male colleagues just don't get um, without knowing anything about me. They were, you know, asking, they were assuming a lot and asking a lot of questions. Um, but I, and I understand on some level that these parents um, are leaving their children here and they are have some concerns about the Jewish life here. But I, I really don't believe that this would have happened to any of my male colleagues um, um, when they met a parent. They might, like sometimes instead of asking about religious life before they can even ask about Jewish religious life, they have to ask questions about me. Wow. So it seems like you, this is like a crux issue is, 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 for so many white Jews, the there is a certain image of what a Jew looks like, and 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 it seems very difficult to get to get past that, and that that creates more than uncomfortable situations for mm-hmm. for Jews of color in, in in Jewish spaces where you're supposed to be everybody's supposed to be Jewish, you know, no, no, no differentiation. So I I also want to add too that being a female in the rabbinate also, like there are still, so we, we're doing this to ourselves and and Joshua Lesnar on on your show talked about the images in his office. I have been into multiple synagogues where they still, that are progressive reform, whatever you want to call it. um, And they still have images on their walls with bearded white men with tefillin, um, which is, you know, how traditional Jews pray, that these men look relatively orthodox and no one in that community looks like that. And so the fact that we're beholden with images of what a rabbi looks like or what a community leader is supposed to look like who, who leads people in prayer is supposed to look like, that has a lot to do with the images that people still see in their synagogues. So what is it? I mean, it's like... The ten million dollar question: What does it What does it take to to change that? Does it take rabbis like you being, you know, being public, you know, mm-hmm. change, you know, to change the image? What What does it take to, you know, to change those perceptions so that that things aren't taken for granted or or 
the image of the Eastern European bearded mm-hmm. man is not is not our, our image of a Jew. One of the things that that I think will help, and it's one of the things I'm taking on, I feel like I, I'm taking on, is that none of this will change unless I can make my colleagues see that it's important. So I have had multiple conversations with white male colleagues or white female colleagues to getting them to try to understand the importance of this issue um, so that they can serve as leaders in their community. And when they see microaggressions can disrupt them or educate their communities. Some rabbis feel like they're not, they're inadequate to talk on the, talk about the subject or they feel like they don't have to because there are no Jews of color in their community um, or they assume everything is, is all right. And so what I say to them is that we have Jewish values. Use your Jewish values and our text, all of our text, to teach what it means to be inclusive and radically welcoming and what's important, what's, what's inappropriate and what's appropriate to ask people when they walk through the door. I definitely, I definitely want to get, want to get into that. I mean, we, we, mm-hmm. we, 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 we talked about it a little bit on, on Rabbi Lesser. So, and, and, and in general, I think, you know, that that first initial meeting is 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 still an area that that almost all Jewish communities could use in, in improvement with, with with everybody. Um, so you write about the burden of being asked to explain yourself to to answer questions about conversion from a complete stranger. I, yeah. I I thought it was really heartbreaking when you wrote, "I rarely get to tell my own Jewish story in a way that feels safe. I am often made to feel like I am expected to rattle off a mm-hmm. simple yes mm-hmm. or no answer." as if anyone's Jewish story is that simple. So I guess, could you just, can you help us? Um, why, why does it feel, why does it feel so wrong to you or, or, or make, really make that, that um, you know, when a, when a white identified person in, you mm-hmm. know, in a Jewish setting asks you where you come from, if this mm-hmm. is the first time you've joined us, you know, what your mm-hmm. story is, what, you know, well, I also want to pull out, is this the first time you joined us? That's a different question, because I think that's a more that's that's a more common question when you're trying to welcome new members. Um, and I still deal with this today. But the, to answer your question, it's othering. And so I'm coming into a house to pray. I mean, I could you don't know what's going on with me. Maybe somebody in my family died or I just want to be in community. or I just want to be a Jew in the pew. Um, and also most white people don't understand how many times I get asked that. And one of the things when this happened to me recently at a conference where somebody sat down at dinner and started rattling off questions to me before I even knew his name, I asked him, how often do you get asked those questions? Well, never. I said, so why are you asking me? And I said, you know, I know you're Jewish. This is a Jewish conference. So that's really all that matters to me. (laughs) I don't need to know how that came to be. I'm more interested in getting to know you, but why do you feel asking me those questions helps you to understand me? It tells you absolutely nothing about me except whether I convert it or not. Okay, short time out here, little commercial break. Do you want others to experience, to hear this kind of conversation? Please just take a minute to give us a five-star rating or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews really, really help other people find out about the show. All right. Now back to our interview with Rabbi Sandra Lawson. So have you come up with some with some do's that you would, <laughs> you know, in, in, I mean, I think we know the don't. What, what, are, what are some or what are the don'ts, I guess? What, what, what no, are, I mean, the thing is, like, what I think what communities need to understand is that regardless of whether they live, that Jews of color have been around for forever. 
Um, and, you know, because of the, 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 the fact that any, any group that has moved here, they assimilate and they start to look like the rest of America. So, you know, for Jews anyway, even though a large portion of Jews um, immigrated from Eastern Europe, they've been in this country long enough that the Jewish community is starting to look like the rest of America, which means it's probably the same racial and ethnic demographics you're going to see in a larger America, you're also going to see the Jewish population. And depending on which study you look at, 15 to 20% of the American Jewish community self-identifies or is identified as Jews of color. And so that's a large, considering that we are 2% of the, the Jews are 2% of the American population, the fact that 15 to 20% of the Jewish population are Jews of color, that's a significant number. That's not a number that you can just ignore. So we need to stop assuming that when people of color come into our community, they're not Jewish or that they converted. And Jewish communities as a whole, I mean, a lot of us with trauma, our history in this country, aren't necessarily welcoming places in general. And so we need to work on what it means to be hospitable, what it means to be welcoming. And some communities do that better than others, and some communities do it, do a terrible job. Is there an example you could share where you walked in to a place and they just got it or you just you just had an encounter where you felt you felt so, welcome and unselfconscious right away or 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 is that that too high a, a bar right now where, no i mean it's just there so for i mean so I've, I've been to two communities that from the very beginning were pretty welcoming one was Tikva and and i think the same of it in baltimore and congregation bait harvareem in atlanta but once i was once people so like the initial group of people who welcomed me were fine, but it was, you know, after I'd been there for a while and people, as people started to see me more often, then they felt entitled to know more about my information. So even in those spaces before people asked me my name, we're still making assumptions about, about me. Like for example, um, at Congregation Beit Haverim, there was um, a woman who was actually not a member of our community, but she came to our community a lot. And she, we were in the middle of something, I don't, I don't even know. And as soon as she got there, she's like, you're not Jewish, are you? I said, actually, I am. I'm the board member of the synagogue. Like, <laughs> and she's like, oh, like, you know, but she did that in a group of people and it was othering. And so luckily I was in a group of people that I knew, but I've also been in space. I've been in a synagogue where uh, recently um, I think it was in Philadelphia. It's a reform synagogue. And I was really kind of hesitant to go at first because it's a large synagogue. And um, I was just, it was just, I just didn't know that it was going to be quite warm. But even though it was a large synagogue, when you, I walked in the door and it wasn't easily navigated. Like there was no, like when, when you walk in, here's the sanctuary. But there was a person there that said, hey, welcome, have some food, have some water. The sanctuary is this way. So I went and got some whatever snacks they had. And then um, and then another person directed me to where the sanctuary was. I can't tell you how many synagogues I have been to where I walk in the door. If I, if I, have, I get buzzed in and I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> oh, it's like you're exploring a, a, a cavern or a, you know, yeah, a fortress yeah, and you don't know. Yeah. Right. Um, one thing I wanted to get at is, is I mean, the basis of, of your essay and, and, and the point you and your co-author make, Donna, is that um, about the importance of, of personal narratives and how personal mm -hmm. narratives 
can be transforming. So I have that on the one hand. And on the other, I understand how it can be off-putting to be asked aspects of your, of your own story mm-hmm. on, on, on first, first meeting. So what, what is the right formula or, or space um, for Jews of color to share personal narrative and, and, and change some of those per- perceptions? Well, my first thing that I don't understand, and, I'm, and I ask friends this all the time, is all right, I'll, why I'll, I'll is I'll it so answer. important <laughs> to know? Like, I just like even my friends, I have a friend in Baltimore who stepped on it and asked me inappropriate questions um, and then spent some time with me going to synagogue. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I really get it now <laughs> um, because she saw how people interacted with me. And so I don't know what goes on with white Jews because I'm never going to be white. But I do understand white culture better than white people understand black people or brown people. Um, but like, I don't understand what goes on in people's mind where they feel like they are entitled to know. And the only answer I have is privilege. And so when you are the privileged dominant group, you feel like you can behave or act or ask certain questions or assume a level, assume like, just like assuming everybody celebrates Christmas. Cause that's how, that's what our dominant culture says. You celebrate Christmas. And if you don't, that you something wrong with you or you're an other. Does the Jewish geography thing play play into it? Like there, there's that joke that that like we two Jews meet and they're like, oh, we went to this mm-hmm. camp or we went and and if like somebody can't you know doesn't fit into that puzzle, they don't they don't know what to do with it. I'm yeah, trying so to see if what, there's like a less a less mm-hmm. nefarious um, mo- motivation behind it potentially. Yeah, and so and I and I as I as I work with students and to and I haven't really I had this conversation with some staff members um, and friends. Um, and one day I will talk with students about it. So Jewish geography can be fun. I get it. I played the game, but usually with, you know, one other person like, oh, like I have a colleague whose son is um, about to marry the sister of somebody I went to school with. Uh, it's weird. Um, and that was a fun Jewish game of geography. The, the othering piece of the challenging piece is when you're in a large group of people, and you all start to do it mm-hmm. around what camp you went to or what school you went to, or what Jewish this and what Jewish that. Jews who don't have that experience can't contribute to that conversation because it is assumed that you have those experiences. So we have a lot of we have a lot of students that went to camp, a Jewish camp here. And that that was their int- that's their thing that made them love Judaism. We also have a lot of students who didn't have to, didn't go to camp. Um, and we also have students who are Jewish but didn't do anything uh, um, Jewish their whole life, and now they're in college and they want to explore, explore that. So I get it on one on one hand, yes, Jewish geography is fun. It's like you, it makes it makes you feel connected, but it can also make make other people feel disconnected or not connected at all. I just I, I just want to go back and, and and ask again about about mm-hmm. the personal narrative. So if it's an important to share, is it are you is, are you saying it's important to share in in sort of the spaces and your settings of your choosing, like a podcast, like an article, like. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I but I also think that when people have relationships, your story evolves. I know lots of Jews of color. I have no idea how they came to be Jewish or care. It's just never been a question that I've asked and they have never asked me. And it's something that most of all of us usually experience by white people, white Jews or Jews who have white privilege. Um, and so when people have people are in relationships, you know, at some point, it is okay to ask because you know each other. You've been through some things together, and you could say, "Hey, you know, if I, you know, this may be inappropriate, or hey, you know, I've always wondered, 
you know, forgive me, but did you convert? But if we've been friends for a while, I feel like that's fair to ask. But to ask me right when you meet me, before I've sat down or when I'm, or if you even already know that I'm Jewish, asking me questions (laughs) about my conversion status, what I often say, here's something funny. Your average Jew knows that once you're Jewish, and I believe this when I converted, once you're Jewish, you're never supposed to be asked if you converted. Um, You're a Jew. That's all that matters. White people forget that when it comes to people of color. Is what you just said, is, is that what you mean when you say white Jewish privilege? Because I, I, I feel like the, the word, when you're talking about Ashkenazi Jews, if you, if you uh, confront them with privilege, that might be something that they uh, fight back against. They might say, mm-hmm. well, my, I, my family fled to this country you know, right. in the Holocaust. So, so I'm going to say several things. So first of all, um, we can no longer assume that Ashkenazi means white. There are black and brown people who have Ashkenazi identity from family or whatever. And so, and, and within the Jewish framework, I'm making a little square, within Jewish framework, there are some in our community who have privilege. Um, and so that privilege plays out in our music and our prayer books and the food that we talk about even. And their privilege in assuming that all Jews look like them, look white. And in larger American context, no, there are like Jews have, some Jews have a lot of privilege and some don't. Um, But the fact that we are a religious minority, that takes away whatever, that takes away a lot of the privilege that white Ashkenazi Jews may have in our society. Yeah, I just feel like in the, in maybe the larger societal race conversation, it's Mm -hmm. sometimes hard um, for white people to, understand what their privilege you know what oh of the, course you know yeah like, but what they don't understand is that racism when you're talking about racism you're not talking about individual responsibility or individual people that is when you're talking about when you're talking about individuals you're talking more about prejudice but racism is a system that was designed and built from the very beginning of the finding founding of this culture and it was designed to privilege one group of people over the other it was designed to privilege white men with property or initially people from great britain um and then white people with property um, and then just white people. Um, and somewhere down the line, you know, women got the right to vote and men and gay and black people um, um, got the right to vote and gain citizenship. Um, you, you couldn't even buy property in this country for a while unless you were considered white. And there were brown people who went to the Supreme Court arguing that they were white so that they could buy property. And and then, down, you know, um, now, you know, gay people have more rights than they had before. But you, there are still people in our society that are marginalized because they don't have, they're not, you know, white Anglo-Saxon men. So this, this I think, ties into, you wrote something, or, or you and Donna wrote something that was, that was pretty clear and strong. And, and, and you said there is a continued commitment within the Jewish community to the belief that people of color have equal rights and equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. Sadly, this commitment to equality is often limited to people of color who are not Jewish right. and to right. the rights of Jewish people of color in the larger society. So, so you, 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 I mean, you're essentially hitting on a hypocrisy here that's, that's conscious mm-hmm. or unconscious. Um, I think I'll, I'll go back again to how, you know, how do you combat that? Or is it, is it up to you to combat that? I don't think it's up to me, but I do think that acknowledging it, you know, for example, I've been in plenty of communities where, um, you know, there might be 
people of color in the room and it's a Jewish event. And the assumption is that I'm not Jewish. So on one hand, I'm radically welcomed as an outsider coming into the community. But once someone finds out I'm Jewish, all of a sudden I'm treated as another. Oh, wait, then people ask inappropriate questions. I do think the Jewish community is committed, like, like I wrote in the essay, to you know, working on social justice issues, working on racial equality, prison reform, all that. But all that happens outside. They're not doing the work that they need to do inward to see how they are supporting a racist system or white supremacist system or seeing how they are supporting white privilege within their community. Because it's so easy to look over there and see what, how white people are doing so wrong, but I don't want to look inward to see what I'm doing. Which means that when Jews of color come into Jewish spaces, they are often not treated as Jewish. Well, let's let's shrink it down from the whole mm-hmm. world um, because um, you can't take on the whole world by yourself. No, no, but you. but um, <laughs> although it seems like you can sometimes, um, <laughs> how about how about at Elon uh, University? Um, what what kinds of thing are, are are you doing there, or 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 I guess is it? Do you see it as part of your scope to expand um, students' view of authentic Judaism, or or who is an authentic Jew, or 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 is it is it is it happen more on an unconscious level that you're just you're just doing your work? So yeah, I am just doing my work. So my role here is to support our Jewish students and help them. My I feel like helping them come to a Judaism other of their understanding. And so for me, that means I meet them where they are, wherever they are in their Jewish life, and I help move them along. I don't have any expectations that they should be, you know, further along wherever they are in their journey. I'm just like trying to help them where they, where they are. And our students are all over the place when it comes to their own level of Jewish knowledge. My students that I work with here, they just want a rabbi. You know, they 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 know I'm black and they know that I'm queer and, I, and on some level that's that's cool, it makes me extra cool. Um, but they just want someone to support them and 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 be there for them and answer whatever Jewish questions or have coffee or lunch. Um, you know, and and for the most part, my students have not asked me the same inappropriate questions that their parents have. Um, but it doesn't mean that they don't share biases. That doesn't mean that they don't have racist ideas. But I just think that where they are right now, they're just happy that to have a rabbi and they're, they, they, I hope they like me, I mean, <laughs> but you know, that, that I'm present for them. And so, and also I work on a campus that is not a, a, a politically charged campus. Students are generally happy. We don't have protests and we don't have people trying to tear down statues. Um, and, and we don't have a lot of like, you know, pa- Palestinian, Israeli, you know, BDS stuff on this campus either. And that's just not where the students are. Um, that doesn't mean they're naive. It just means that that's just not where they want to put their energy. Before um, offline, uh, you mentioned to me that in the however many months, uh, you know, certainly more than a year, maybe more than two years since since um, you started working on this on this essay, that your perspective have has changed, um, whether whether just by growing older or being in the mm-hmm. field as a rabbi, can you can you talk a little bit about how how you know what's happened since since you wrote the essay? That's actually not what I said, but I can understand how you would you would say that. Okay, um, great. Yeah, uh, no, I'm just saying that I'm in a different place. Okay, 
doesn't mean that, that no. So the, the, the things I wrote in the essay are still true and they're still true today. If I were to ask to write the essay, I'm not sure I would have written it the same way because I'm, I'm in a different place. I wrote that I was a rabbinical student who was struggling to um, find employment as an intern or on uh, in jobs. And I was getting faced with um, the racism in the Jewish community um, and wasn't sure how to ask for help or wasn't sure, you know, how to how to make that change. And today, you know, I, I have, there's power behind a title. I do, you know, when I say things, people generally, for the most part, will listen. They may be argumentative a little bit, but I, I have the knowledge and the, expert, the expertise to at least Jewishly back up what I'm saying. Um, so that just makes me in a different place, uh, you know, being a rabbinical student with no power versus being a rabbi that has some power. Um. I know you've got a very active, um, you've got an active online following. You've you've shared your essay in a number of different places. Have you gotten interesting feedback on it? Uh, has has there been, has it led to a conversation that you that you'd hoped? Yeah, I mean, when I've shared it, I think because the way Don and I wrote it, when we wrote it from our own personal um, narrative, I have not seen um, much pushback. I don't I haven't seen much arguing like nobody's saying that's not true because it's our story um i have seen that with some of the other essays that i've shared on evolve that didn't go with that approach and i think that's just part of how white fragility works instead of like listening to the content you're going to argue certain points that you think are factually not accurate um but whenever i've shared it i mean um people who feel the need to respond you know they have said that they that they've learned a lot from the essay and they appreciated uh, sharing our nar- narrative and it, it makes them think. I don't, I don't know if they would go back, if they've gone back to the community and anything has changed, but the more, uh, the more people learn about the diversity in the Jewish world and how people of color are treated in the Jewish world, I want to believe that will create change. And I also, I also want to say too, that there are a significant number of black and brown rabbis out there who don't want to do this. They just want, to be, they they want to be rabbis, and they don't want every conversation to be about. I don't actually want every conversation to be about race either, um, but they're not willing to take this on. They just want to do their jobs, and I respect that. Um, I I have one more one more question. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, the disembodied voice. Um, <laughs> well, the voice from behind. God. No. <laughs> you just mentioned that when you about being in a different place when you wrote it and you know experiencing racism on the job maybe on the job hunt and not knowing where to turn or what what to do to do about it what would you say you know if you could talk to yourself from three years ago or if you could talk to someone who is maybe experiencing a similar Mm -hmm. thing uh now like what what would you say to them well one of i'm not sure because one of the challenges was that i was the first black student admitted into rrc um, and one of the first black students admitted to any rabbinical school. And so, um, like I have a colleague who's now an RRA member, a Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association member. Um, I've never talked to her about her experiences at another school, but I know she was the first person there. And so like the black and brown students that are now rabbinical students, because other people were there before them, um, I could say things to them. Like, but I was as a, as a, being the only black student for a while, I just wanted to keep my mouth shut and I just wanted to learn. And I, I, I didn't even understand sometimes um, the things that I was often experiencing were microaggressions because I just didn't even, I was just trying to 
you know, finish school. And, but then once, you know, another black student came, it became easier because I wasn't alone anymore. And so her and I could talk about some of the things that we experienced. Like one example, um, uh, um, another student, um, another black student who graduated from RRC, um, when I got to RRC, I had long hair. She had short hair. Um, we looked very different. Um, and then I cut my hair off. And a staff member who's no longer there said, oh, my God, how am I ever going to tell you two apart now? <laughs> like, seriously. <laughs> I think she meant it as a joke. But, like, really? Yeah, I didn't. I never heard that story. That's yeah. at the... and, and I'm not sure what I would say because it really is hard being the first to do anything in this country. And so I, but I'm not the only black rabbi out there and I'm also not the only black queer rabbi out there. So I have a support network of people that I can talk to, um, which would not have been the case 10 years ago. I guess as, as a, as a white person, if I really start to think about this stuff and think about how structurally racism has been woven into American history. Mm -hmm. And then you get into this idea that I buy that that structure has gotten into my consciousness in mm -hmm. a way I'm not, I'm not even aware of. And, and, and I'm sure I've said things as cringeworthy as what you've just, mm -hmm. you know, repeated or, 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 you know, in that, in that vein. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it can just seem very overwhelming to struggle against. I mean, do you have, do you, I mean, is there, is there, is there hope that we're, we're thinking and talking about this? Like, I guess I'm, I'm looking for where is the, you know, where is the, where is, where is the light? Because it seems, you know, the way I just put it to me seems, seems very, you know, very bleak. So, um, so I, um, part of my duties are um, serving as the, Jewish educator on my campus. And that's a Hillel International responsibility. And so I was recently at the Hillel International Global Assembly. Um, it's their large conference, thousands of people. And this is the second time I had gone, I've been there. The first year I was there, there were some people of color there. Most of them are really young and they were probably springboard fellows. This time around, the number of black and brown people there was a lot bigger. Um, I met the black assistant director from St. Louis, um, who shared with me some of the microaggressions he had experienced. Um, there's a, I met a young black woman, actually I knew her already, but she was at the conference, she's a rabbi at Yale. Um, and so to see, that gives me hope that um, when you see that level, when you see more racial diversity, um, that, 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 that shows that things are changing. For me, anyway. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're getting um, getting to our close, uh, running, mm -hmm. running, running on time. Um, I wanted to ask, like, if you were if you were brought in as a as a consultant to a a Jewish community that really wanted to address these issues, mm -hmm. where where I mean, obviously every community is different, but where mm -hmm. would you where would you advise a suburban white mm -hmm. majority Jewish Jewish uh, synagogue to to start? So um, I have been brought in as a consultant, okay. and that's what I'll call it. But what <laughs> Maybe I, what this I, will get you more right, business. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, you can call it, maybe, the, I'm not sure, I, I'm calling it a consultant. But what I often do, and I, ha, and, I, and I do travel, and I do spend time in Jewish communities talking about these issues. And 
often, not always, I will talk to a white person and they tell me how great they are on X issue. And I say to them, it would really, really be helpful if you had a, a group of members who are, you know, re represent a marginalized minority and if I could talk to them before I come, because that will give me better insight into how your community is doing. And so I went to DC last year and that's what I did. I met with, um, with, a, with a Zoom call, um, I met with the people of color um, who are, and, or, and, and some people who had children of color or married to people of color, just to get insight to see, you know, because I don't want to go into community talking about things that people already know. And so they told me what they wanted me to say. They wanted, they wanted the community to understand the microaggressions they experienced, the racism they experienced, and they love the community at the same time. So there's that piece. Depending on how much time I have, I have a tech study. What I often do is I start from the beginning. I don't like, I don't, I, at this stage, I'm not coming in trying to teach people how not to be racist. I want Jewish communities to get back to their roots and their values. So I use a tech study and that tech study brings in biblical text. You know, one text in particular talks about how we were, you know, from the time we fled Egypt, we were a mixed multitude of people, meaning we've always been a mixed multitude of people. I bring in text from the That's from, the from that's from Exodus that Yes, yeah. Yeah. I it's pass. you know, it's a the yes, yeah, so it's a it says that we were an heir of Rob, which in that this instance means that we're a mixed multitude of people. There's lots of ways that you can um, embody that text or translate that text, but one of the ways I like to remind I use that text to remind people from the time that we left slavery, we were never just one group of people. We've always been a mixed multitude of people, and then we made it to Sinai and then we became a group of people. Um, and so I do that. And I bring in text from the Mishnah, text from the Talmud. Um, and, and then eventually we bring in some um, modern texts, one written by Leah Moser, one written by Joshua Lesser, and then I talk about pluralism. So that's the next stage. Um, and then, um, and that sets them up, hopefully, to have a better dialogue using Jewish values to talk about how do we be welcome, how to be welcoming of people who might be different than ourselves. Wow. Well, I deeply appreciate, um, you know, your uh, your willingness to answer any and all questions and 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 be a repeat guest on on the uh, the podcast in the former iteration and the Evolve podcast and your work on the Evolve project and uh, and promoting it out there on online. So um, thank you. It's it's good to uh, good to see you. I, I hope uh, I think we. Um, you know, we addressed some 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 important issues today, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I think gave folks uh, something to think about. Yeah, and one of the reasons that when I was when I using my social media platform to create a Facebook group, um, initially set it up, you know, so I could teach, um, and then I realized I also need I wanted to bring in this other piece talking about race, and I also did not want to write a bunch of essays on race, and I didn't want to just randomly pull essays from the internet, and I re remember that our movement, our denomination has these amazing essays um, on race. And so that's one of the reasons why I started to, to um, share them because they're, they're great. All right. Since I've, since I've got you, you're here, we're talking about your, your social media platform. Um, I have to ask, what's, what's, uh, what's Barefoot Bluegrass about? <laughs> what is that? That's so funny. Um, that is my own little side project. Um, and sometimes I weave in Jewish music, Jewish words. Um, but I wanted to be, I'm not a, like, I've learned 
guitar and singing mostly as definitely as an adult. And I was really frustrated that I could not like remember, like I, I had to continue to rely on chord sheets to learn music. And so at some point I realized that like old country music, old bluegrass music had pretty much the same chord structure. So I decided to learn a song um, and, and then play it by heart, you know, with my wife videotaping it or video with the iPhone. And because I did it in the summertime and it was night, it was dark and I didn't have shoes on. Uh, um, I just, the first two, I didn't really call them bluegrass, but I figured it was good to have a title for it. And so, um, so now it's even in the wintertime, um, it's barefoot bluegrass and blues. Although I, I thought about for a minute changing it to barefoot boots and wait, <laughs> but no blue, wait, <laughs> boots, bluegrass and blues to keep the bees, but I'm still doing it barefoot. So that's what that is. And I love the music. So uh, hopefully you're not doing it below 32 degrees. And, and no, no, it's a lot warmer here. Got um, it. Got but it. But I have done it one one day when it was super cold, and I finished that song really quite quick. Awesome. And how could how could folks find that? Um, on yeah, the- you can if you have an Instagram account or a Facebook account. So um, my handle on Instagram is uh, Rabbi Sandra. My handle on Facebook is Rabbi Sandra, and my handle on Twitter is Rabbi Sandra. Good branding. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, and I uh, hope to let's uh, let's stay in touch. And uh, hopefully this podcast lasts a long time and we'll we'll have you back yeah. again. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. From beyond. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like us to plug? Um, oh, my website is uh, Rabbi Sandra Lawson. I hope that's right. <laughs> it's my website is Rabbi Sandra Lawson. Great. Have a great yeah. day. Um, and it's too early for Shabbat Shalom. So enjoy the rest, rest of your week. All right. Thank okay. you. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Rabbi Sandra Lawson. If you enjoyed our conversation, please be sure to read the essay, Racism in the Jewish Community. Let us know your thoughts about today's episode. We want to hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversations, and that includes you. And the more we hear from you, the more it's a conversation. So send us your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you got. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. I'm waiting for my inbox to be blown up, so come on. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. The show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we'll see you next time.